Do you love the Making a Musical podcast? Please subscribe, like, and review our show so we can get this into the hands of more musical theater lovers just like you. Ticket Peak just named us one of the five best performing arts podcasts out there. We're number three now, but help us out and let's move up that list. Meantime, if you want to learn more about my new off-Broadway musical, Good Morning New York, go to goodmorningnewyorkmusical.com. You can get tickets for our 54 Below show. That's October 4th. It's a concert and you'll get a free album. It's a Friday. Heads up. So you have time. You have a Friday in a few months. We also have tickets for our off-Broadway show. That's January 9th, 2020. Tickets for both shows are on sale now. We have merch. We have music online. Go to our website to learn more. The Indiegogo page for my new musical, Good Morning New York, is less than $100 away from reaching its goal. Help us out. Donate $10, $20, $50, and you'll have access to stuff like shirts, tickets, and more. Visit GoodMorningNewYorkMusical.com to donate. the Making a Musical podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline. Throughout the podcast follows the development and execution of my new musical, Good Morning New York. We open off-Broadway at the Players Theater January 9th, 2020. This is part two of my interview with Sam Mayer, who is a producer for Broadway's Be More Chill. It opened this week, so now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty about how Broadway shows are made and funded, and you're about to hear some exclusive information. So, you got to listen to the whole thing because you're not going to hear this anywhere else. Before we get started, let's get a word from our sponsors. Cutting in here real fast to talk about sleep. Can you recall a time when your mom yelled at you to make your bed? Or could you recall a time waking up and your toes were coming out of the covers freezing? That is the story of my life because I don't have heat in my room. It's in my apartment, but not my room. So that's why I want to tell you about ZSOC. ZSOC is a patented bedding product which solves two major issues. The ZSOC eliminates the everyday hassle of making your bed. Let me repeat that. You'll never have to make your bed again. It also keeps your toes tucked in no matter how much you toss and turn at night. If you want warmth from your nose to your toes, you gotta check out ZSOC. Here's how you do it. Visit ZSOC.com. That has three Z's though, so it's ZZZ. S-O-C-K dot com. There's also a link in the notes section of this episode. This is going to change the way you sleep. You're going to be happy you checked it out. Welcome back to the podcast, Sam, for part two of our interview. You must be so excited because the first preview of the show happened this week. Oh my God, it's so exciting. Like, you can imagine there's so much buildup and then all of a sudden it's here and there's 900 people watching the show at once. It's very exciting. So for people who have no idea what the show is, tell me... What is it about? A lot of the press has kind of picked up on the idea and, and using a line that it's Dear Evan Hansen meets The Little Shop of Horrors. And I think that's a pretty accurate way to describe it. Of course, it's extremely different from both of those shows, but as sort of an initial orientation point, that's a, a good way to put it. So, you know, Dear Evan Hansen for the teenage anxiety, social media ramifications theme, and Little Shop of Horrors for the sci-fi 
um, you know, aliens um, and, and, and sort of the nostalgia for a time gone by, like Little Shop of Art is a little bit 70s nostalgia and, and B. Marcello is a, little, a lot of 90s nostalgia, which is cool. So explain what the pill is, because I'm seeing that pill everywhere. That's a great question. Thanks for asking. The, yep. the pill is called a squip which is a super quantum Intel processor, S-Q-U-I-P. So the pill is what the lead character takes because he feels like he is a loser. And he, if you take this pill, it's a supercomputer that implants in your brain and tells you what to do. And it tells you how to be cool. I wish I had that back I in high school. I wish I had that too. Mm -hmm. Were you in um, theater in high school? I was in theater in high school. Um, I was a theater major in college at LA Community Theater in high school. Um, and got really into it. And yes, I certainly wish I had a squip in high school as well to be right. cool, to yeah. tell me how to be cool. <laughs> uh, and the, the, the squip in the show, uh, you, you get to pick the lead character, or the, the person who takes the script gets to take who the, the squip resembles. And so that's a fun question to ask people too, is like, who is your squip? Meaning like, who do you wish could be implanted in your brain telling you what to do? A lot of people say Barack Obama or Beyonce or Ben Platt, for example. Um, and I haven't really thought about who mine would be. Mine would probably be Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yeah? Yeah. Hmm. I like Caitlin from The Bachelorette. Wow, Yeah, okay. Caitlin Bristow. I'm a big fan of her. I don't know why. <laughs> like you would like her in your brain telling you what the best move is to be cool. Yeah, because she's funny. She has a podcast. She has great arms. Love it. Yeah. So it's obviously a great show that any, everyone thinks of someone that is cool and that they would like to take qualities yep. from them. It's sort of about finding, embracing the loser and the geek in yourself. Meaning, you know, of course you can imagine one of the themes of the show is you find out that like... You really don't need to take this pill to be cool. You can find out what that means within your own self. And sometimes being a geek is cool. How did you become a producer for the Off-Broadway and Broadway productions? So a lot of people like to call me fan zero of the show. I talked about that in the previous episode, how I like I, I went to the original production at the Two River Theater in New Jersey and fell madly in love with it. And basically as a super fan of the show, uh, got to be friends with uh, some of the cast and creative team um, because I was just like, hi guys, I really like you, <laughs> let's hang out. Um, Did you just like email them? Yeah, and I, I had known some of them a little bit through the industry a little bit um, and was connected to them in various ways. Um, and then for the Opera Russian came on board as a co-producer, which was an incredible experience because getting to be involved in that way was an incredible learning experience. Um, I've never really been on the production side at all. I have a theater media company that you know does a lot of press coverage and editorial coverage of, of theater and creates content about theater. And I've done theater in high school and college and seen a lot over the past few years, but I've never really been on the side of the table uh, where uh, the people are actually making the theater happen uh, on a practical logistical level. So I, I came on board as a co-producer and what's really great as a co-producer is that you get to participate in a lot of meetings and even if it's for a lot of them just listening about how marketing works and how the general management team is doing what they're doing and contracts for actors and uh, securing the theater and deciding on ticket prices and all this stuff that, you know, I feel like I was aware of how it worked a little bit but didn't really know and like being able to really hear all that this summer was really awesome and be on board in that way. So explain the levels of management for each producing team and with investors. So lead producers first, right? So lead producer is pretty much, you know, sort of like a CEO 
of a company, like making all the executive decisions and kind of in charge of all the departments. Um, and then there's co-producers who organize uh, lots of stuff with investors and uh, paperwork and sort of act as a little bit of a go-between and, and get some privileges because of that, like being able to listen on calls and participate and opening night tickets sometimes and uh, name above the title, which is cool. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's investors and investors just don't have much participation other than they invested money in the show. Uh, and then there's a general management team, which I kind of didn't know until this summer, being involved on the production side of things, how important and crucial a general management team is for a show. They do everything. And it blew my mind figuring this out. Like, you know, you think of like, when you hear the word producer, you think they're the ones who are like doing the stuff. And like, they're really just making a lot of decisions. Like a general management team is actually executing everything and like deciding on the, you know, laying out the, the ticket availability and how people get house seats and how the stage door is gonna work and coordinating with stage management to be sure everything that happens within the, the creative team and the cast happens. Um, and so like, that was what was really fascinating to me is that yes, producers are producing theater and making things happen on a practical logistical level, but the general management team is really just the unsung heroes of the, the theater world. I think I think of it like a, a lead producer is like a CEO and a general management general manager is like the COO. And I always hear that like for new producers or playwrights, whenever you're producing a show, the first thing you want to get is a general manager. Oh yeah. That's what I'm I always told. Didn't know that a year ago and now it's like I don't even think about getting involved in the other show or like if you know, my dream is now to become a lead producer. Like the first thing that would happen is like get the best general manager possible. But the thing is there's so few of them that you have to have some street cred. Just from my experience shopping around, you got to have some street cred uh, uh, and equity. Like equity helps you if you're kind of non-union. Oh, I see. That uh -huh. can be a problem. Interesting. Heads up for anybody. It's not bad. Right, right. Um, you just might have to pay a little bit more up front. Yeah. And then really convince them to take you on your show. It's a good business. It's a good reason to jump into that business maybe too. Maybe I should become a general manager if they're so hard to find. It really is. They're, they are hard to find. I actually, because I just got an accountant. And it's interesting because she's big in like the investing world, but I'm like, hey, I, I can't afford a general manager yet and I'm still trying to get there. So can you help like just oversee my budget and make sure it makes sense? Yeah. <laughs> because I, I'm not that, I'm, I'm not, I don't have that talent. Yeah. Numbers. Yeah. General management is like, I, I've been the CEO of a company before, like I started a company a, a few years ago and having a COO is having a good CEO is like sort of the key to any business. And I feel yes. like figuring that out on Broadway in theater is the, the COO is the general manager and the better they are, the more smoothly things are going to run and the whole, the, the much higher chances of success will, will be there. Expensive, but worth it, but not, not too expensive. No. Um, if, if you have a really good business plan, then it's worth the money. And yep. then you'll find people to onboard to invest. Let's talk about investing now because people always throw that word around. No one knows what it means. Explain that. What is an investor? Investor is really no different than when an investor invests in, let's say, a startup or you know a new tech company. Um, you're you're putting money into a show and hoping that it'll be a profitable business 
and turn a profit and you'll start uh, making your money back. Broadway in New York City theater in general is very tough only because I think the stat on Broadway is something like 80% of shows don't even break even, much less make a profit. So the odds are stacked against you on Broadway. And, you know, I, I think in the startup world, that number is much different, I think. I, I'm not necessarily 100% sure, but I think that, like, the the chances that are much higher in the startup world that you'll at least, like, maybe see your money again or get it back versus on Broadway, it, it's very much not the case that most of the time, you know, investors see their money back. That's why I think, like, a diverse portfolio is important. That's why a lot of Broadway investors invest in several different shows so that, you know, the chances are higher that at least one of them will kind of take off and, and start to turn a profit for them. But... In Broadway, it's my opinion that making your money back is the definition of a wild success. In the startup world, the definition of a wild success is you made a lot of money. Mm. On Broadway, at least like getting investors their money back is a wild success. And then shows like, you know, Hamilton or the other big hits that are making lots of money back for their investors after they've already, you know, got their money back, basically. Those are beyond our wildest dreams for a wild success um, for investment. Does that make sense? It does. So now let's break down like how they get their money back. Let's say a show is $10,000 and an investor puts in $1,000. Then they get 10% of the profits until the show recoups, right? And Basically, then yeah. By- the way I understand it is that a show um, you know, has weekly operating costs and a capitalization. So a show raises money and has an operating budget and starts the show. Start rehearsals, start the show. And then, of course, as ticket sales kick in and per week, if uh, the ticket sales are more than what the show costs, then there's some profit that week. And that profit builds up and builds up until basically you recouped is the word that the industry uses to say, all right, we've now um, spent all the money that we from our investors, but we've basically made it back through ticket sales. And then the idea is a longer running show can then start to operate where each week they're bringing in more money than it costs to run the show. And at that point, if it's already recouped, then that's just straight profit. So then, you know, that's money that's going back either to the investors or the producers or whatever the setup may be in terms of that, that breakdown. So if we had to dumb it down in like a sentence, <laughs> would it be basically the the money that you have after you pay everybody goes all the way to the investors and they split Sometimes up I, I, I don't think that's work, how it works every time, but oh. for the most part, I think in general, um, it depends on the setup that, you know, the lead producers have or whatever it may be that like there may be profit sharing at certain points of the process. And a lot of it's like, you know, super intense legalese that, you know, it's, it's hard for anyone to understand. But the main idea is that like, once a show recoups, first of all, you know, I think most people need to get into the mindset that on Broadway, investing money and getting your money back, that is a wild success. So boom. Okay, great. It's a wild success. You, you've gotten your investors money back, meaning if someone invested $10,000 on a show that they have now gotten $10,000 back in, in, um, in profits. Uh, and then anything beyond that is, is a wild success. And, and anything beyond that is broken down sometimes sometimes half to the producers, half to the investors, sometimes all the investors, sometimes all to the lead producer after a certain point. Um, Interesting. There's a lot of things that can happen at that point. Um, an accountant that I brought on board, she recommended putting a cap on the investors because she was like, okay, so if you have a plan where you 
pay the, you pay for the cast and crew, and then once the show recoups and after you re- repay the investors, then you can split it 50-50 up to once they make like 20% of profit or extra. I don't I, know. I will say, you know, I have much more experience in the startup world than I do for Broadway. That, that's how it can certainly work in, in a startup. And I would imagine that on most cases in Broadway shows that that's similar, a similar thing to happen to um, and, you know, that that affects and the startup world is things like the board of directors or, you know, also there's uh, in the startup world type A investors, type B investors, meaning, you know, you, you maybe get more of the profit. It's not necessarily based on exactly how much you put in and the proportionate amount sometimes. And Broadway can be set up in any way. I mean, e- each Broadway show is its own distinct business entity and can be set up in any way that it chooses as far as I understand. I mean, obviously you have to... Uh, stay within the law and do all this stuff and comply with all these agencies and you know the Broadway League and whatever it may be but I think um, a lead producer basically gets to decide what that is and and then investors get to decide if they want to invest in that based on what it is but I think for the most part it's it's a situation of uh, you recoup you know that's where basically until you get your money back that's pretty black and white like you you get your money as much money as you put back in when when and if the, for the investors they get yeah, their money back when and if a show recoups and then after that it's it's up to whatever the initial contract um has which i think is often some sort of profit sharing model interesting okay so let's say after uh hopefully be more chill is going to be here for a while let's say you move on to an untitled broadway show what is a good way to go after those investors or a good business model if you had to i think that the the piece of advice I can give to answer that question is that you want to, if, if the goal really is to make money versus to, you know, be philanthropic and support the arts, which obviously there's a huge element of that that most of the time you can imagine, I, I would think that most investors in theater know that because there's such a high chance they'll never see their money again, but they at least feel good that their money is putting up art. So if the goal, though, is to really make money, like to think of theater as a profit turning business, I think the goal is to be so aware of the potential of a show and like the marketability of a show and the success potential of a show in terms of how many tickets it will sell. Um, it's really no different, you know, I think about this all the time with the startup world or the business world where I will see, for example, on my block in, in Brooklyn, I will see a new nail salon open up and I say, well, there's already three of those, like, unless they're doing something wildly unique and cool to bring in customers, are they really going to turn a profit? Or let's say I see like a very cool t-shirt shop, uh, in Williamsburg, where I live, where you can imagine, like, there's a lot of little cool t-shirt shops. Yes, And I see the t-shirts in the windows, and I say, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, what an adorable t-shirt place. But, like, are they really going to, like, make money, like, offering t-shirts on a store in 2019 uh, on on a side street? So the same thing applies for me in terms of thinking about theater. Like, what are the chances that this show is going to really sell tickets? Most of the time, I think theater is is budgeted where... It, to really be able to make money from it, it needs to not only sell out, but sell out at full price, meaning, you know, no TKTS booth, no discount offers because you're panicking and will get people in for half off just to have people in the seats or to sell some tickets. Um, because theater is expensive. You know, renting a theater is expensive. 
general manager we already talked about. You got to mm-hmm. have a whole full general management team. Mm-hmm. Uh, cast and crew are expensive. Riders have royalties coming to them. You got to pay someone to to sell the tickets, like Ticketmaster, Telecharge, or someone like that. And they're going to take a cut of it. Marketing. And so really there's expensive. so many costs involved that yeah. a lot of people, I think, get into uh, putting up a, a piece of theater and A, not realizing how expensive it is, and thus don't realize how um, how important it is the show is going to easily sell out at full price for the length of the run. Um, and that's a hard thing to do. I mean, you know, it's not no secret that theater, it's hard to sell out theater at full yes, price. Of course it is. Um, uh, even when shows first open, it's hard to uh, sell out. Well, I don't know. All right. <laughs> so, so you know, that, that and that's sort of the, to answer your question, it kind of goes back to the old days of like producers who are just like able to identify when a show is just going to really resonate with an audience and really sell tickets. And I think that that's the key. So then how do they get that investor on board? I guess so you don't have to speak from your experience, but maybe just industry know-how, the emails or the cold calls to potential investors is it a long, drawn-out process, or is it a quick five emails and, hey, let's sign the contract and write the check? I think it really depends on who you know and who you have access to that has money that might want to put their money into something. Um, if, you, if, if you're selling to... If, if, you're, if you're asking investors to invest in theater that have invested in theater before, they know what they're getting into. So all they're really concerned about is, does this show stand a chance of being really successful? They're just sort of looking for, you know, is this thing really going to take off? To get non-theater people inve- uh, to invest in theater shows, that can be a much longer process because the first thing that needs to happen is you have to explain to them that they probably won't see their money ever again. Like, that's a thing, like, with theater. Like, it's just part of the deal. Um, and so you have to be sure that they're aware of that. So that part can be really dr- long and drawn out. For theater, it's... I, I think the the group of people in this world who invest in theater and uh, you know there's not that many of them. I, I think there's a small enough group to where if you can get to them, you stand a pretty good chance because they know what they're getting into. So you're saying if I happen to find them and say, "Hey, will you invest in Good Morning New York?" They'll be like, "All right." If you <laughs> have, if you think the Good Morning New York, that's the name of Good Morning that's, New York, yeah, the musical, uh, yeah. is poised to sell out at 100% for the full length of the run, and that the budget for the show mm-hmm. is less than what it would bring in if if it were sold out at 100% for the entire length of the run, does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, that that's a really good tip. Right. That's a really so if you you know tip. you think like okay great I'm gonna get a hundred seat theater off Broadway or off off Broadway and hundred seats I can sell that per night but like really can you for nine weeks or however the length of the run is and you know that means you can't let your friends come in and sit for free because every ticket that is going to them yes. is you know a hundred dollars or fifty dollars that you're that's not going to that pot and that's a good way to think about it too I know a lot of times for Broadway shows like the idea is that premium prices may not even be included in in the the weekly operating budget so that anybody buying a premium ticket might be considered like a bonus in the sense of like we didn't even account for that money coming in so if it is great and that might help offset you know sometimes if you are having to uh sell tickets at a discount price or fill up the theater in other ways so that's something i've learned a lot in the process too of like being prepared for multiple scenarios of how how that can go down. So if it's my first go, obviously it's my first go around with an off-Broadway theater. I don't have a lot of industry cred in the Broadway world or off-Broadway world. 
Um, is it going to be a harder sell? I think so, but I think if you can keep your finger on the pulse of what really does take off, I think that that's a good way to put it. I want to cut in real fast and talk about pails. <laughs> you hear that? Oh yeah, the sound of pills in a container. I have a partner called Physician's Choice, and they've been letting me try some really awesome products like women's probiotics. There's also apple cider vinegar capsules that I've been taking. You can burn up to 700 calories a week. That's like running seven miles, but without the work. There's also stuff for stress hair, nails. This is a Colorado-based company trying to get their name out there. And you know me, I'm from Colorado, so I gotta support the home team. So if you wanna give these products a try, use my code JACK20 at checkout. The link to Physician's Choice is in my bio of this podcast episode. Don't forget, JACK20 gets you 20% off. That's spelled J-A-C-K 20. All right, back to the show. I'll tell you what worked for me. I, I had a media company, I still have a media company called Yes Broadway. And the goal is to get more 25 to 40 year olds who are not in the theater, in the theater. The reason I started this media company, and, and it plays into uh, the answer to your question about producing and, and uh, raising money for a show, is that when I started going to theater a lot a couple years before that, like I basically was in the theater a lot in college and then most of my 20s and early 30s was working in the startup world and didn't really go see a lot of theater, wasn't involved in it anyway. But all of a sudden I started going again a lot um, a few years ago. And I, I wanted to go so much. I'm a Scorpio, total weirdo who hmm. just will go so hard on something. Like I went like four nights a week. Four and, nights a week? Yeah, and oh so my, my boyfriend was like, you know, I'll go one night a week with you. The huh. other nights get the other people. So I started taking lots and lots of friends. And most of my friends aren't theater people. So they were people I basically were dragging to shows and what I would what I learned very quickly is what they were into and what they were not like what was resonating them with them and what was not a great example is like the revival of My Fair Lady on Broadway right now is a classical musical and like I love that I love it Sam as a person who loves musical theater and classical musicals love seeing that but if I took my best friend's like finance husband who works in finance who isn't necessarily exposed to musicals and, and doesn't necessarily, isn't into like, you know, ballads and show tunes, would he like that? Maybe, probably not. But if I took him to Hedwig and the Angry Inch, it's like a rock concert of a musical theater with like these pop show tunes, he would be so into it. And so I was able to identify what was really gonna like resonate with an outside of theater crowd. Because the, the, the theater going crowd is small in New York City. Yes. Like it's not like there's tens of millions of people in this world or in the city who um are like people who go to see theater all the time so you have to figure out what to point them towards and and as a media company I had to figure out what to point them towards as a producer your job is to identify what's going to really like catch fire and sell a lot of tickets theater is a world of extremes which is fascinating and awesome in some ways but in some ways just really hard to manage because there are 80 percent of shows on broadway don't even turn don't even break even and the other 20 percent are like flying high most of the time there's usually not really a middle ground where it's like they're doing okay it's like hamilton and like shows that close before they even stood a chance <laughs> yeah. of making their recruitment um and that's true all broadway as well like um and all broadway has an even lower uh return rate on or success rate because i think uh sweeney todd last year the immersive production of sweeney todd yeah. at the Bear street theater was i think one of the only profitable off-broadway shows of like the past three years or something um oh they came boy. out with some stat where it was like so most of the time in off-broadway production is usually meant 
for investors to be a, a chance to be in early so that if the show does have future life, that they sort of have a right of first refusal and can kind of like have a chance to decide that, yes, they do want to invest more and help this thing move to Broadway. Okay, you got to tell me, because I was just about to ask you that, explain right of first refusal, what it means, and what investors get if they get in early for off-Broadway. If a show is off-Broadway and there's going to be future life, whether that be Broadway or a national tour, or even sometimes a transfer off-Broadway, um, a lot of times the original investors will have the right to invest more should the show move to the next step. Um, and that right of first refusal is often why I think a lot of off-Broadway investors are investing in these shows to begin early. Because if a show is really catching fire and in that moment where, let's say, in between off-Broadway and Broadway, that like everybody wants to invest in the same because it's really taken off and clearly going to be a big hit or they think it's going to be a big hit, um, you, you, you want, as an investor a chance to say, well, I'm investing first. There's no more room left to invest in this show. And so that's the smart way to do it. And sometimes it's even that, like, you know, the off-Broadway uh, investors will have the right of first refusal if it moves to Broadway, and maybe everyone on Broadway who is mostly, or a lot of the people from off-Broadway might have the right of first refusal on investing in the national tour, let's So explain say. what that means, though. So, okay, so let's say someone invests $10,000 in an off-Broadway production. When the show goes to Broadway, what does that mean? They're $10,000. Does that mean they can invest 10000 more? It depends. There's a lot of stipulations. It can be very different depending on the contracts as far as I understand. Oh, uh, so it can be anything. Yeah, oh, I mean, so I think that's sort of the the the, the thing that works out well in a, in a free market society is that, <laughs> right. like, you know, people who start a company or found a company or the original board or, or owners can decide how and if they want to invest. And, of course, it kind of works out. Uh, sort of like the Adam Smith invisible hand thing where of course like they got to make a deal that makes sense for their investors otherwise there's no point in reaching out and investors are going to be like absolutely not you're just going to take my money and go right. um, but there's also you know certain stipulations and you know I think that the producers of Hamilton probably set themselves up in a way to where like they are getting you know everyone's been in Hamilton that's a bad example but like there's probably a world in which they could have gotten more or that the investors could have gotten more and like whatever the stipulations would be. And I think, you know, whether you invest in a startup or a Broadway show, I think the idea is like be poised to make a lot of money should something hit. So, for example, let's say someone invests $5,000 in my production for the off-Broadway run. Um, whether we go to uh, Broadway, let's say the West End or L.A., that doesn't mean that they are entirely that doesn't mean that that money goes to those productions. It just means that they have right of first refusal to decide if they want to Sometimes, invest. Sometimes. I think mostly the answer to that is yes. That Because there's also the operating budget for, let's say, the off-Broadway run. That, like, that, that show still has to exist and happen. And money has to be used to make that happen. Of course, you know, the goal in anything is have operating costs that are less than what the tickets are coming in for each week. But sometimes it, an off-Broadway production might have used up a lot of the money to make it happen, let's say. Uh, so maybe there's like a, a profit, but the real profit is going to be like in a bigger, on a bigger scale. Um, in, in the startup world, there's like series A and series B, and that's sort of like similar to that, where like you might have certain rights of first refusal to go in first, um, and you might be able to, you know, t you might have a better um, like deal where like you might get more, more of the profit sharing, let's say. Uh, in the startup world and that stuff can exist in theater as well. I, I, I guess the overall theme here that keeps coming up is think of each show as a business entity, as its own startup with investors. 
and what's the best case scenario there. You know, of course, a, a, a group of founders starting an app and owning 100% of the equity in that company that they started that is this app, if the same becomes Facebook or Twitter or, or uh, you know, Tinder, let's say, they're going to make a lot of money, but it's going to take a lot of money to get there. So it's a question of like how much investors are willing to kind of sometimes keep putting in. Sometimes that's the case in the startup world mm-hmm. too. Um, you know, you have to decide, for example, if a show is moving from Broadway to Broadway and you have these rights of first refusal, do you want to exercise them and put more money in um, or sort of cut your losses at that point or say, great, or I made my money back. Let me say, great, at least made my money back. Um, but I think in general, just like in the startup world, being in early means it's because you're, you want to be in early in case you do want to take it on the long haul. Right. And would you recommend, okay, so let's say, because my budget's 13000 um, because the Players Theater residency gives us a theater for free. So let's say we, we raise that, but more people want to invest. I just say no. Uh, you can take more, I think. You can, <laughs> you can redo your budget, as far as I understand it, to where... Um, but, you know, I think that that's a legal question that you have to ask your lawyer, too, because okay. you would want to be sure that you haven't promised the uh, the first investors who you raised 13000 from that that you aren't going to raise more. Like, you want to have the legal right to be able to raise more if you want to, if you think you're going to want that. Would it be smart to start a different LLC for a future production or not even go there? I probably, I don't think that that's, the right move at first. I don't know. Check with the lawyer to be sure, but I right. don't think so because it's a little. It's too really much. more about the rights that the investors have within this. But you know, in any business, uh, a company usually can raise more money. And the general idea is, of course, you know, if that money is being spent smartly and wisely, often usually in the world of marketing, let's say to say, yeah, but like, let's say someone didn't give you, let's say someone even just gave you, handed you twenty thousand dollars, or you won the lottery tomorrow and you decide I'm going to put it into my show, even mm-hmm. though you've already raised your thirteen thousand, let's say, like you would probably put that towards marketing so that you can fill those seats at a hundred percent price and fill them at 100% capacity, in which case, of course, all that money just benefits the chances of the show being successful and making its money back in terms of like the operating cost per week being less than the, the ticket revenue per week. You're answering, I know I'm throwing so many questions at you about investing. That's just because right now, that's the phase that I'm in where it's like, there's all these questions coming in from potential investors or uh, potential associate producers, and I'm just like, I don't have any of these answers well i can tell you from the startup world and i think it applies to producing theater as well that your best asset is having a good lawyer and a good accountant (laughs) too bad there isn't too many good lawyers and accountants out there in the world and the ones that are very expensive and sometimes the ones that are terrible are expensive but you know i i have a friend who has a business and she has a really good lawyer because he's also an accountant and huh. I was like, who is this person? Like, I will pay them whatever they need to be paid because if they can answer my financial and my legal questions all at once, it's so great. But even if those are two separate people, it's so awesome to have someone like that on your side who can help you um, do that. You know, especially on the, the legal side where a lawyer's job is to be sure that, you know, you benefit the most as their client. Or even if an entity, for example, an LLC is their client, that the, the entity stands to be the most successful or the most protected or the most profitable or whatever it may be. And I think within the theater world, too, there's a lot of opinions about what's the right path. And I, th- I think my opinion on it is that there isn't necessarily a right path. 
you know, I'm just as caught up as anyone is in the glamour and glitz of Broadway and like being eligible for Tony Awards and all this, you know, all the gravity that comes with the word Broadway. Or even if it's off Broadway in New York, like just New York, you know, yes. that's where you want theater to be. But like there's a lot of value to theater that reaches lots of other people, whether it be in L.A. or even a small town in America or internationally, you know, the West End is just as awesome and big and cool as Broadway in a lot of ways. They have their own Tony Awards. I hear it's cheaper. I don't know, but I do know that in general in Europe, in the UK, that like theater is so much more supported by government funding. Oh, really? That it's just a lot easier because you often are not left completely to do it all on your own. I think so much of the the theater on, theater on the West End and in Europe in general is is funded at least in part by the government, even if it's not mostly funded. They at least are just like getting a lot more grants and fellowships and, and funding that in America does not exist for the most part um, to be able to put on big stuff. And I, I've seen a lot of shows on the West End and a lot of shows have transferred from the West End to Broadway. And like you can just see and feel the, the quality. Like it, it's higher often only because they had so much more to work with financially. And I also think that something that's interesting is that for if that's been going on for decades, which it has, then even if a show, let's say, doesn't even necessarily have more money to do something with than the Broadway show does, oftentimes it appears better or bigger or looks more expensive. And I think that's due in part to the mindset that like creators, theater creators in Europe and the UK, for example, have had that freedom for a while to play and explore a little more because they're more supported by the government and society overall, culturally, that they've been able to kind of arrive at some of that stuff. And, and every now and again, don't get me wrong, I'm the world's biggest Broadway fan and I love Broadway more than anything in the whole world, including the West End uh, and theater there. But there's been a lot of times, especially with plays versus musicals, where I'll see a show on the West End or, or a show that's transfer, transferred from the West End that just is like so much sharper. Did the play that goes wrong transfer from the West End? Yeah. Because that was so good. It's so that good. Set. And you know, that's a parody and like a, a silly farce that is was very well done and super supported. But the great example is like the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, mm -hmm. which was just like something was there that like is often is much harder to achieve, I feel like, on Broadway. And it's not necessarily the set design, it's not necessarily the acting, it's not necessarily the writing, it's not necessarily the directing, but it's kind of a combination of all of that that just like, so there's something that I can identify when I see this. It happened in Angels in America, the production that was transferred from the National Theater. Um, and uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And often when these shows are transferring over, you can kind of see that. And every now and then I've seen a show actually on the West End, and it's certainly true there as well, where there's just like something a little more of a spark there. It happens on Broadway just less frequently. Right. So we're talking about shows transferring from the West End to Broadway, but now let's kind of switch it switch it up and go back to Be More Chill because Be More Chill is licensed the earlier drafts, not the Broadway. Yeah, I think the way it works is that the the original world premiere production is licensed for high schools to be able to do across the high schools and community theaters and regional theaters to be able to do across the country. Uh, and then I would assume uh, that there would be a new, there will be a new license version um, for all the updates that have been made from Off Broadway and then to Broadway as well. Can people buy and produce the script for Be More Chill? I think they can license it. I think it's to the Rodgers Hammerstein Licensing Division. 
um, that other production. And then I think the way it works is that it has to be approved because there's often stuff when shows are on Broadway or having major productions to where that might not happen. Sometimes even producers, I think, have worldwide rights to being able to do that at any time. I think that's happening with To Kill a Mockingbird. It came out right now that Scott Rudin, who's producing it on Broadway, has the worldwide rights. And so someone tried to do an adaptation in, I think it was in the UK, and it got shut down because he has the worldwide rights. Versus some shows um, and some musicals that are the revivals or sometimes even new, show, new shows that have had, a, had some licensing already happen, like Be More Chill, where I think it's up to the licensing or the producer or whatever the rights holders have. Sometimes even the writers, what, what rights the writers have in terms of like the licensing, if they can approve and deny productions. Um, oftentimes it's a geographical thing, like producers may not want productions of a show within a certain mile radius mm. because then it might diminish ticket sales. But I, I can tell you that for a show like Be More Chill, like it's great that there's lots of productions. It helps, you know, build buzz. There, there's productions happening, I think, even some during the Broadway run. If not, there was definitely some happening, uh, maybe not during the off-Broadway run, but right after it that were fully licensed and um, are great because then people are seeing Be More Chill and in, in you know, Seattle and at their local community theater or high school and then the next time in New York they might want to see the Broadway production which is great for ticket sales. Do you have any um, exclusive details about a tour? I don't. I, I don't even know <laughs> those details to have exclusivity on. Like, I wish I had the exclusive info as to what would happen if there were to be a tour. Right. Me too. Um, I will say this. I, I think there is totally a world in which a national tour of Be would be really awesome because there are so many people who obviously aren't in New York or who can't make it to New York and when it's going to be on Broadway there's people who never end up in New York sometimes to see shows and so of course like as fan zero of the show the more people that see Be More Chill the the better I think our world is so of course I'm very pro that um and I think that you know it's it would make a lot of sense we'll see if that becomes a reality based on a billion different factors but know that like I, for one, am someone who really would champion that idea and say, let's try to make that happen because, you know, a national tour benefits everyone involved, including and especially the world at large in terms of having the cultural access to a show that I believe in as much as I do be more chill. What message would you like to give to a kid out there who wants to be on Broadway? A kid out there who wants to be on Broadway. And, and, and can I answer the question to a kid who wants to be on and or work around in the world of Broadway? Yes. Because I think that's so interesting that there's so many people like me who spent their teenage years and college years thinking I have one goal to be on Broadway and then realizing not too many years later that I definitely did not want to be an actor or a performer. Yes. Which was, was like a very weird thing to happen because it was all I wanted for many years. My famous story is that, you know, I was an actor in, in high school and went to college for theater. And uh, then I, you know, graduated college and basically worked in a lot of office jobs. I didn't even graduate. I dropped out of college and started just working in office jobs. I had nothing to do with theater. And at a certain point, I went back to school to finish my degree. And all of a sudden, I had the room in my schedule to audition again because classes were spread the other day and I could go on audition. So I got headshots and, you know, got a subscription to Backstage Magazine to find the auditions. I went on my first three with my brand new headshots thinking, awesome, I can finally do this and become an actor. I cried after all three of the auditions. They went well. And I was like, oh, wait, what's happening here? I don't think I want to be an actor. And it was this crazy, you know, turn of events in my life. And, you know, luckily I was able, 
not too long after that to find a place within the, the theater community that I did want to be involved in, which is on the total opposite side. Um, you know, my dream job is Broadway director. I want to All direct right. a big Broadway musical one day. Um, but being involved now as um, a producer and, and having a media company that champion shows is a great way to do it. So to answer your question, the, the advice I'd give to um, someone who, who wants to be on Broadway or work on Broadway one day or, or get involved in this industry, in this world, is first and foremost, I'm not going to lie, I'm going to tell you it's very hard. It, dealing with an industry that is not necessarily... A, a giant industry that the world adores and loves so, so much, like film or TV or music, um, it's hard. Um, but luckily, sort of Hamilton swung the pendulum in the other way a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And shows, uh, big shows tend to do that every few years and sort of like keep everyone like at least like to where Broadway can exist and happen in musical theater is, is still a thing and kind of on an upswing right now. There's some people who even say it's in the golden age again right mm -hmm. now. But it's a hard industry no matter what. You know, it's hard to get involved in an industry where there's so many people who want to do the very little jobs that exist in the industry. And so, I mean, that's true for actors. It's true for stage management. Maybe it's not true for general managers. Maybe we should start a general management firm. There aren't a lot. <laughs> uh, so there's a business to be, to be had there. Um, I, I'm just grateful that we have such an incredible general manager for, for B. Marcel. Mm -hmm. she, she and her team are just beyond impressive. She's like my hero. Mm -hmm. um, Who is it? Can you say? Yeah, her name is Lisa Lisa Dozier King, and she is just a total rock star. It's her is first her Broadway own? show. Oh wow! Is she her own company, or is she through someone? She's her own company wow. and has a staff that work on B Marshall and lots of other shows. And I can just tell you, they are knocking it out of the park. They're incredible. Nice. Lisa and her team are a dream come true. So your message to the <laughs> my kids. message to him is be more like Lisa Dozier King. She is be incredible. A general manager. Be a general manager. I'm just kidding. I would say you know be sure that it's what you want to do. I love that line. I think it's from Sister Act Two, which is so silly but true. Where she says, if you wake up in the morning and the only thing you can think about is singing, and you get through your whole day and the only thing you're able to think about is wanting to be a singer, then you're a singer. And I think that's true for a lot of people on Broadway. If you know, if you think about this all day long and it's all you want to do, you can make it happen. It's going to be a long uphill battle, but you can. You might have to be very creative. Luckily, most people in the Broadway industry are creative. You might have to be creative about how you're going to go about that. You know, for me, I would have never thought that it would have manifested it in being, having a, a media company that champions Broadway um, or being a producer. I, I couldn't even imagine that a year and a half ago that I would, be a Broadway producer in a year and a half, which is wild. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you have to be creative and sort of, you know, get there and, and be involved in it. And I think that because the, uh, the theater industry is so small and it's a lot of connections of who you know, being there and, and putting yourself in as many places as you can so that you are in the right place at the right time eventually at one day is so important. You know, it, it sounds like just the same advice everyone gives, but be an intern for your favorite uh person in the industry or favorite part of the industry um do that work and be present because oftentimes that stuff leads to to much bigger stuff very quickly um if you really put the work in and like end up putting yourself there so that you might end up in the right place at the right time and i know that not everyone can move to new york but if you have a summer there's a lot of theaters here that do 10 minute plays it's a 30 to 50 seat theater it's free they they give you the theater for free and you just bring yourself and your friend and you do your play and then you had a show in New York City. 
Yep. You can take, um, that's what I did. My very first 10-minute play, I flew out from Denver. 10-minute play called The Christmas Fart. Got some people from Craigslist in it at the Manhattan Rep. Write that down, everyone. The Manhattan Repertory Theater. It's still there. Uh It's super small. uh, Super, super small. Off, off Broadway. Fly out. Produce it. And then, you know, your show's in New York. You can fly back and write something else and then fly back. I know that The Tank also has a similar program. They're a really cool theater company where they will straight up give you space to create and produce and, and make theater happen, which is cool. Right. And that's in New York City. Yeah. Which so is maybe awesome. maybe there's some real benefits. I've been very negative about you know being such a small industry and hard to break into. But one of the real benefits of New York City is that because there is so much of it, there there's stuff to be found like that. That's like little hidden gems of ways to to work your way in. And for people that are listening, um, I do want to say that in high school I got kicked out of my production junior year, um, and then the first two years. I didn't even make a, a lead role or supporting. I was ensemble, ensemble. Junior year, I got ensemble again, and I just stopped going, and it kicked me out. Wow. So just because you might not be the lead or the supporting character, that doesn't mean that you don't belong in the industry. It, You know, it's one school in one city, and that's not. that doesn't mean that you're not good enough. I agree. There's always Our, a place for Be More Chill's leading man, Will Rowland, who was the supporting uh, role in Dear Evan Hansen. Mm-hmm. It, this is his first lead role since middle school. See? <laughs> That's and now the he thing. is a leading man on Broadway. So I wouldn't compare yourself to your classmates Correct. or anyone else. Just do what you do, and then someone's going to find a place for you, or you'll find a place for yourself if you are a producer or a general manager. I agree. Broadway is a situation of, I feel like, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, and you just really have to believe that. As trite as it sounds, as silly as it sounds, as hard as it is to process and digest that, that thought, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, just put yourself in the position where that can happen to you if... If you want to be open to it. Yeah, agree. And we'll end on that note. Cool. And come see Be More Chill. Be More Chill musical.com. How much are tickets? Uh, I think tickets, I don't know the range. You know, there's a, a premium tickets and all the way down to uh, balcony seats, I think as low as $49. Don't quote me on that. But I think that balcony seats are, some of the balcony seats are $49 and premium tickets range in the couple hundreds. And opening night is when? Opening night is March 10th. From Broadway at the Lyceum Theater on 45th Street, sort of on the other side of Times Square. There's only a couple of theaters on that side of Times Square, and we're over there with the cool kids. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So go see Be More Chill, buy the album, keep those downloads on the upside. Yep. I found out we can use the quote that we are now at 250 million streams. Really? You need to update. It's time to update. I'm sure you guys probably already did update the trailer then because I just watched the trailer. Yep. Over. Well, I think it says over 200 million, which is certainly true. Oh, it's correct then. Oh, man. We're at a whole nother landmark, 250 million. That's so good when the numbers keep going up. You have to keep updating your marketing stuff. Yep. That's great. Which is a great problem to have. That's a great problem to have. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Sure. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 